Welcome today to the Someone to Tell It To podcast. We are so grateful that you're joining us again. Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird was voted America's number one best loved novel in PBS's Great American Read survey. The 1960 Pulitzer Prize winning novel tells a coming of age story set in the South in a time wrought with racism and injustice. The story has been translated into more than 40 languages with more than 40 million copies sold worldwide. The novel earned Lee a Pulitzer Prize in 1961. Even more than 50 years after it was first published, the novel still sells 750,000 copies a year. In 2007, Lee was honored by President George W. Bush with the Presidential Medal of Freedom for her contributions to literature. And in 2010, President Barack Obama awarded her the National Medal of Arts. One of the most quoted messages from the book happened when the protagonist, Scout, a young girl from Alabama, came to her father, Atticus Finch, to explain her daily troubles with other people. He replied, If you can learn a simple trick, Scout, you'll get along a lot better with all kinds of folks. You never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. In today's program, we've invited Michael Verdi, an award-winning teacher, documentary maker, and the founder of Memory Bridge, a nonprofit foundation dedicated to ending the emotional isolation of people with dementia. Since 2003, Memory Bridge has connected with 8,000 people with and without dementia in one-to-one -one relationships. Michael teaches people around the world how to connect with people with dementia in emotionally meaningful ways. He has a master's degree in literary studies from the University of Iowa, a master's degree in theology from Durham University in England, and he is currently a PhD student at Indiana University. In this program, Michael Verdi will be talking about the topic of empathy, climbing into someone's shoes and walking in it can give you the power to genuinely understand a variety of people as it is exemplified through America's number one best loved novel to kill a mockingbird. Michael, it is a joy to have you on the show today. Welcome. Well, thank you. I appreciate that, Michael and Tom. So Michael, I want to start with this question. When we invited you first to be on the podcast, you immediately suggested that you would like to focus on the topic of empathy as it is portrayed in the book, To Kill a Mockingbird. So why this book and why this topic? We'd love to hear. Well, Michael, empathy is one of those words that you hear of all over the place from different walks of life and different kinds of professional sectors. You hear it with respect to caregiving. You hear it with respect to education and politics. Often you'll hear a cry or call for greater empathy. It's a word, in other words, that we all use, but if you scratch the surface a little bit and try to figure out what people mean exactly by that word, then things start to kind of shatter into all kinds of ways. They're, they're interesting ways, but nevertheless, there's clearly not a shared consensus about what we mean with a word that very many of us anyway are, are using frequently to, ex to explain something that must be very important to us. So my thought was that we don't get lost in 
abstractions or cliches, and we just turn our attention to a novel that I think most people who have read it would agree has a lot to do with whatever we mean by empathy, and then just use that novel as a shared basis for talking out together what sense we're making of it, at least the two of us in this conversation or in some other context, how people are using that word. In other words, we can either stop at the level of cliché and just assume that we're meaning the same things, or we could take this phenomena that must be very important to us to have this kind of ubiquitous expression circulating in the zeitgeist. And when it comes up, if it's critical, instead of assuming that we know that we're talking about the same things, I think it's a great opportunity to explore actually what we we are thinking and see if we can't arrive at some mutual understanding. So essentially, I think the novel can help you and me uh, on this conversation uh, talk through together what in the world do we mean by empathy? I, I'm guessing uh, y- your project of being someone that someone else can tell it to must involve uh, uh, whatever we mean by the word empathy in a very significant way. So I think thinking through that would be of great consequence to you guys and certainly a great consequence to me and my interest in connecting with people with dementia. Hmm. Well, the way we look at empathy is and, and understand it is that uh, that it is to suffer with, you know, and to get into, as you know, we'll learn in the book too, into someone's shoes, someone's skin. And we, we believe it is to walk beside someone, walk with someone, sit with them, cry with them, laugh with them, whatever, whatever it may be. We feel that that is just so important to, to be able to do. It's not just standing off to the side and wishing someone well, because that's really not enough. Uh, we all need to know that we are not in this life alone. And so, you know, that's for us, empathy is, is helping other people know that they're not alone. That's a wonderful way in, in my mind to, to think about it. So if I was going to turn that back into our novel to try to, let's say, cash it out in terms of images. Um, I would say in the novel, who is it that might, I'm just talking out loud here, who in the novel might feel alone? Who in the novel uh, might be in a place where they would want to reach out to, to you and Tom and to feel less alone? And the first thing that comes to my mind would be to think who in the novel is actually isolated from other people that, do, that does not have someone to, to tell it to. I know, for instance, Scout has Jim and Jim and Scout have Deal and Deal has Jim and Scout. It appears that the town of Maycomb is rampant with gossip. At least that's one of the things Scout is continually talking about, particularly associating gossip with Miss Stephanie Crawford. So it looks like there's a lot of talking going on in Maycomb, and yet not everyone seems to be able to talk in the same way or as freely or to have a conversational partner. And certainly I think we could agree that Boo Radley, locked away in his home, would be alone and would be in need of someone to tell it to. So maybe if we think about in this context, what it would mean to uh, connect with Boo Radley. And if we put the question in that way, then we can see, my goodness, the whole novel may be essentially asking that question. Certainly what motivates the young people from, you know, chapter one to the end of the novel is how to get Boo Radley to come out 
I know a lot of attention is given to Tom Robinson's fate and, and Atticus's defense of Tom Robinson in the in the trial. And yet that is kind of a, a let's say, an inner plot related to this larger plot of how does Dill, Scout, and Jim get Boo Radley to come out? So I, I'm going to turn this back to our question and say, what 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 is it about this word empathy that somehow gets other people to come out, to come out of wherever it is that they feel that they are shut or locked into or otherwise shelled off from. What is it about a kind of attention that, in, let's say, invites people, encourages them to come out? And, and it, it, once we put that in those terms, then I think the novel offers itself a lot of different images and scenes that would enable us to explore what does it really mean to have someone who's been shut into their home, cast out of the community, what would it mean to invite that person back into the community, back into communication, back into communion? And whatever that is, I would have to think it would have something to do with this notion of empathy. So that's why I suggested the novel. Yeah, and this topic of empathy that's exemplified throughout the book in some ways is actually miraculous because the book actually almost never made it to publication. And now, as we had recited in the introduction, over 40 million copies have been sold. When Michael and I were reading up on the story, we had learned a pretty neat fact that Harper Lee was given a generous gift, a Christmas gift by her friends to help make the novel uh, published. And, and it happened in 1956 when they pooled their money together and, and as authors ourselves, we, we only could wish to receive some kind of a gift like that in, in the mail on Christmas. <laughs> um, but that raises the question, why do you think this book has been so popular? First of all, I think that's a great question because again and again in surveys, not only in the United States, but in England as well, uh, this book in the Bible come up again and again in either the first or second slot when asked about the most popular books in English, that it has that degree of popularity and that degree of geographical space over this number of years really does invite the question why. So first of all, I think it's a great question. My first thought is that when it comes to our individual, let's say personal identifications with the novel, that that could probably be, oh goodness, probably infinite. In other words, why an individual person at one level might connect with a novel. Could be, for instance, that he or she is a lawyer and so finds the uh, depiction of Atticus particularly inspiring. Or maybe uh, they find the depiction of a young girl uh, with a spunky sort of a spirit in a small town. Maybe they identify with that. Maybe they identify with the, the humor of the novel. Maybe they identify with the issue of civil rights, that are anticipated in the novel. So you can think of lots of reasons why people would be drawn to it individually. But to have this number of people drawn to it, I have to think that there's something deeper than our sort of individual idiosyncratic connections. And as a, a student of literature, uh, I would hypothesize that it's at the level of myth and metaphor, the deep structure of the novel that people find consciously or otherwise, and I'm guessing mostly subconsciously, impelling. 
here's what I would say. This novel, in many ways, is a recreation of the story of Exodus. And the story of Exodus in the Hebrew Bible is the central epic. That is, in many ways, the story of the Hebrew people as it's captured uh, in Hebrew scripture. And it's that same story of Exodus that gets recreated. You could say it's reconceived in a different context in the New Testament. So for instance, the pursuit of the promised land or Abraham following God to the promised land, that gets reimagined in the context of Christianity with a promised land that is not geographically located. When Jesus is asked by the disciples, where is this kingdom of God that you keep talking about and contrasting it with the kingdom of, of man, where is it? In Luke 17, 21, Jesus says, it is in you and between you. That can also be interpreted to mean between you and among you, which is to say that this place, this kingdom of God is not a geographical location, but an interpersonal location. So what you see, in other words, is this story of Exodus being reconceived in the context of Christianity as existing in an interpersonal dynamic. Now, that same Exodus in To Kill a Mockingbird, and I can give you, and let we, let's do talk about it, lots of passages that make this interpretation that I'm offering you at certain points seem pretty uh, irresistible. In the To Kill a Mockingbird, the, the, the Exodus is from a mentality. There is a kind of way of thinking about people in Maycomb. Its chief exponent is Aunt Alexandra. Aunt Alexandra, of course, resonates with Alexandra or Alexandria, Egypt. Aunt Alexandra is a kind of epitome of a mentality in Maycomb that is, puts people in their place. She says of a particular tribe, a particular family, and she knows all the families, and she knows that each family has a certain streak in it, like they have a streak for drinking. They have a streak for gossip. Who knows what, what their streak is, but Aunt Alexandra knows. And on the basis of these various kinds of failures within each of these different tribes, Aunt Alexandra puts them in, a, in their place, and that place is a caste system, according to Jim and Scout. So you could say in To Kill a Mockingbird, the story of the Exodus is reconceived as Scout's journey to liberate herself from the mentality that has colonized the people of Maycomb, most conspicuously in Alexandra, but obviously in the case of Tom Robbins' fate, the jurors of Maycomb, because they have internalized this caste system. When presented with two particular stories about what might have happened, when the jurors are listening to Atticus defend Tom Robinson, Atticus proposes to them that, in fact, Mayella Yule sexually assaulted Tom Robinson. Now, the prosecution's narrative is just the opposite, that Mayella Yule was sexually assaulted. So what these jurors have to decide, and none were there in person, so they have to make an interpretation. They have to interpret two stories, one from the defense, one from the prosecution. And at the basis of the decision they have to make is a point that Atticus brings to the surface. And that is, namely, could a white woman be sexually attracted to a black man? And because the jurors of Maycomb, given this mentality that they have of a caste system where everyone is in his or her place, and those places are arranged from top to bottom, this is how 
Jim and Scout work it out. Jim says to Scout one day, I understand the caste system now in Maycomb. At the top are the white people like us, the Finches. Beneath us are the white people like the Cunninghams. Beneath us are the white people like the Yules or white trash. And then beneath them are the Negroes. Now, this is the mentality, again, the same caste system that's in the imaginations of the jurors. And they have to decide if a white woman could be sexually attracted to a black man. Based on that concept, there's no way that she could, because that would involve crossing out of your place. You would, in other words, be mixing these caste systems, and that's the last thing that can happen in Makem if it's going to continue to be the Makem that it is. So scouts, let's say, journey to break free of the mentality that explains Tom Robinson being judged guilty when he, in fact, was innocent, and the mentality of the missionary circles, gossip about people in the town, all of that is what Scout is trying to free herself from. And that is a kind of Exodus story. So to answer your question, I believe people respond to this novel so powerfully. Furthermore, why this novel is so closely associated in these surveys with the Bible, if it's just by proximity, it's because both the Bible and this novel are working from a central myth of liberation, a myth of deliverance, and how it is that one is delivered in these different contexts, whether it's the Hebrew Bible, the New Testament, or To Kill a Bockingberg, that changes. That's different. But the core storyline is someone of a place of bondage seeking a kind of liberation. And since that, in many ways, is one of the, if not the central myth of the Western world, given our inheritance of it from Jerusalem and Christianity, it would stand to reason that people are strongly, unconsciously or otherwise, attracted to this novel. I'd like to even add to that. First of all, that explanation and, and your understanding of that, it, it, we think is beautiful. Profound. It is profound, absolutely. And that the whole release from and liberation from a mentality, you know, that's judgmental, that's tribal, that is, that there is a caste system. One of the things that we see in our work on a daily basis is a mentality of loneliness and a feeling of loneliness. And any time that we put our, 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 our put in a place where we're in a caste, where, we're, where, we're, where we are judged, where, it, where it's very tribal, it's, it's very isolating. And that isolation breeds loneliness. And when we listen to people, what we hear across all kinds of different social strata is there is an epidemic, an epidemic of loneliness. Well, that, that makes a great, uh, great deal of sense to me, Michael. If we think about, let's, let's take the missionary circle. As it's depicted in the novel, what that amounts to is the ladies in town getting together and gossiping viciously about everybody else in town. And by doing that, at one level, what they're doing is reinforcing the caste system. In other words, their gossip is functioning to keep people in their place. So when we think about people isolated and we explore the reasons why they're isolated, this novel puts on the table, I think, some uncomfortable possibilities that people are isolated intentionally by the way we talk, that the way we communicate in some ways is structuring 
our society. If you think about that for just a second, that our social structure might actually be a product of our speaking so that what's coming out of our mouth in many ways is a bid to recreate, let's say, a dominant subordinate hierarchy. This came up in a very interesting context in my life several years ago. I was working with some economically at-risk young people in the inner city of Chicago. In this particular project, they were each going to be connected with a person with dementia who they would meet in person five times over a 12-week period. And we started talking about gossip in their school, and I asked them to explain it to me. How does it work here? at your high school. And they explained that there was a, like a pecking order. And at the top were people who they said had swag. I said, well, I'm from a little country town, so you'll have to help me understand what swag means. And they said, well, you know, the way you walk was swag. I said, okay, I'm with you now. And, and then they said, now at the bottom, I said, well, what are those people? And she, they told me, well, they're called lames. So at the top were people who had swag. At the bottom were lames. And so I said, well, what's the difference between the swags and the lames? And they said, well, the swags can say just about whatever they want to because who's going to do anything about it? But if you're one of the lames and you talk and you say the wrong thing, you're, 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 going, you're in physical danger. I said, well, what could happen to you? And they said, well, you could be 87. I said, what does it mean to be 87? Well, that's the 87th Street bus stop. And everyone knows that if you don't drive, and that's just about everybody in this school, that if you're going one way in this town, you'll be at the 87th Street bus stop, and everyone knows what time the bus comes, so they know where you're going to be. And when people get shot in this school, it often happens at the 87th Street bus stop. This is what can happen to you if you talk outside of your boundaries and your lane. Now, all of that to go back to your point, that people can be isolated because we have dominant and subordinate social structures that we police viciously with gossip. Look at the internet, look at social media. How much of that is really a, an elaborate mechanism for shaming people? Mm. How much of it is a way that we're keeping each other in our place? We're given certain personas, we're presenting ourselves publicly, but there's always the danger that our presentation could be exposed as hypocritical or exposed as somehow uh, actually not consistent with who we really are. In many ways, in other words, it's not just the gossip of a group of ladies in Maycomb that I'm talking about. I'm talking about the way a society communicates and how that communication is actually putting people in their place. And you could imagine where that would be an intrinsically isolating thing because it would be dangerous in this context to risk saying something. Why would you need someone to tell it to in a certain space of confidence? Well, that suggests to me that there's a lot of places that you can't tell it to and a lot of people you can't share it with. And I would guess that that is precisely the atmosphere that exists in any community that is essentially structured as a pyramid. You guys are doing a kind of exodus work is what I would say. You're giving people an opportunity to come out of a set of anxieties that they're accustomed to experiencing in most of their daily life. And you're giving them a space where they don't have to be either a swag or a lame, but can start being who they are. So I think it's actually beautiful, beautiful work. This topic of judgment comes up throughout the whole novel. And uh, really this novel teaches us to, you know, be live without prejudices. 
And one of the authors that we appreciate his writing very, very much is Parker Palmer, and he's an educator. And I remember in one of our sermons, Michael and I get to preach at a lot of different churches. We shared this quote about community, and we thought we would you would resonate with it, where he said, community is the place where the person you least want to live with always lives. So community is not like a place where you love each other sort of freely and warmly and affectionately. Community is the place where you are purified, where your love is tested, where your childhood of God is constantly put through the mill of human relationships. That is what community is. Community is the place where Judas always is, and sometimes it is just you. Isn't that amazing? I think it's profound, and and it recognizes how much community, genuine community, is a place in which shame is released and when which shame is healed. You might even say that what explains a caste system or any dominant subordinate hierarchy, what keeps people in their place finally is shame. Because that's the great really risk that you could be uh, exposed. So community in the way that Palmer Parker, Parker is talking about it there is a place where you can let go of your shame fear and you can come out not to be seen in your perfect self-presentation as might be the case on your Facebook page, but rather come out to expose yourself for ways that you aren't necessarily proud of without the fear that it's going to cost you your membership. And in that place of fearlessness, to be able to explore together a different way of communicating together. And what I like about Palmer Parker's explanation is that the communication of community is not necessarily pretty. The communication of community is not always nice and sweet. If you're ever in a place where everyone's talking nice and sweet and you mistake that as a sign of community, you're probably going to be disappointed if you spend any extended period of time in that kind of place. So it's really not a movement to prettiness or niceness. It's a movement to authenticity and all that that entails. And when someone talks like that, you know that they have been themselves to what we might call the bottom. They've come to terms with who they are in ways that they would not be proud about. Otherwise, they wouldn't have that kind of insight. Well, shame is an issue that we run into all the time as we listen to people. (laughs) We would be wealthy, you know, one of those, if we were given a dime or a dollar or whatever it is for every time we heard someone say, I've never said this to anyone else before. I've never told anyone this about me, about my life. We hear that so often. And the release that people feel when they are able to share the ugliness, the painfulness, the brokenness, um, the sordidness of, of aspects of their lives, when that happens, the, the liberation, the exodus, that is experienced is is also truly profound. And there is, is in many ways nothing more sacred that we do as enter into the messiness and the ugliness with people and let them know that they're still loved. Yeah, I would, I would agree that that in many ways is a great way to just understand the gospel period. If we consider 
Jesus's abbreviated ministry and what it amounted to, uh, I think it's fair to say that a large amount of his ministry, if not essentially all of it, was to enter into intimacy with people who had been deemed impure, who would have therefore been suffering from the consequence of internalized shame, and then interacting with them in such a way that they understood that in God's eyes, they were not impure. I mean, if we think, for instance, of the leper that Jesus healed, Jesus touched the leper. Now, we know in many instances that Jesus healed persons without having to touch them. Why touch the leper? I mean, the leper in particular, given that it's a disease associated with the skin and of the contamination of the skin. So Jesus touching the leper, you know, we, could, we shouldn't take that lightly. And my thought is that it really does illustrate that we are not untouchables, even though we might have imagined that we are because of the gossip of even the missionary circle, that we're in fact not untouchables and that by touching the leper, the leper then knew the leper wasn't untouchable. And how much of that really exemplifies all of Jesus's ministry? And from what you're telling me, it may exemplify a great deal and maybe even the heart of your ministry. It is the heart. It really is. Yeah. You, you've hit on it. It is the heart of our ministry. I think there's also mission. something significant about the fact that one of the gospel writers put that story first. That was the first person Jesus had truly reached out to, the person who probably was deemed most unworthy of receiving good news. Wonderful. Now, if you keep that up, you'll you'll end up being a, a hermeneut. Do you know what that is? A hermeneut, that's someone yeah, that's right. who reads the scripture to notice that that's first. And then I get you back into why, what can literature, what can, and you can imagine a religion that claims that in the beginning was the word and that the word was God and was with God. No, who, whatever that means, we would have to think this is a religion that puts a high premium on the power of language and of the power of language uh, to, to either lead us to life more abundantly or to lead us into kinds of living, living death. So listening, whatever listening is about ultimately, seems to be the way people reorient themselves. Uh, to being able to come out of whatever it is that they're isolated in, whatever set of assumptions. And my point about language is that it is the language and the stories of ourselves that we either internalize or that others impose on us that can be the place of bondage. That these dominant subordinate hierarchies, this caste system, is deeply implicated, indeed inextricable, from the way people talk and use language. That's the point that I'm trying to make in a roundabout way, that one way of imagining the exodus and the, the bondage of Egypt is to imagine the way people use language uh, with one another and to point out that the consequences of the way we use language is as great as life and death. Michael, we know that working with people with dementia is a really significant part of who you are. And at a time when something like 75% of people in America know someone with dementia, 
few people actually know how to connect with people in this condition in emotionally meaningful ways, including their friends and their loved ones. Could you talk a little bit more about Memory Bridge and how that has shaped you into the person that you are? What does it mean to climb into someone's skin who's living with dementia and to walk around in it? And how does that connect with what we've just been talking about, this yeah. isolation and, and loneliness and the need for exodus and, you know, all those, all those things? Uh, we'd love to hear what you have to say. Well, that is what we've been talking about, isn't it? To touch the leper, to invite Boo Radley to come out, to understand that the term people with dementia can mean any number of things. It might just simply be a way that we're generalizing a group of people and means nothing beyond that in terms of a, of a judgment. It's just something that you're using as a kind of linguistic pointer. Or the term person with dementia could be fraught with all kind of associations. For instance, that that person is living the first of two deaths or that they're on the long goodbye or that they're a shell of them former selves or it's a ghost of a person or a zombie even. In other words, what we've been talking about, about language and putting people in their places applies directly to people with dementia. In many ways, people with dementia, you could imagine as being the lepers of our generation. The, the, that is the fate that is often held up as the most horrific. And interestingly enough, in leprosy, you lose your body. And I would say with respect to dementia, that is, in fact, the case as well. We're inclined to think of dementia as someone losing his or her brain. No one is losing their brain or we wouldn't be concerned about their behavior of acting out or wandering. In other words, if people lost their brain, they wouldn't wander. They wouldn't act out. They wouldn't sundown. In other words, we kind of have it both ways. Those people are losing their brain, and yet they have enough of their brain for us to be concerned about what they might do and to learn behavior management techniques in order to accomplish X, Y, and Z. So what is it? Do they not have a brain, and then we don't need to worry about people being violent or whatever you imagine they're going to be? Or do they have a brain, and then they're not losing their brain? What are they're losing. And what I would like to put forward is the possibility that like the leper, people with dementia are losing their body, but the body that they're losing is their social body. They're losing their place in a body of belonging. They're losing their place in a circle of people in which they previously were recognized as being valuable and meaningful. And as soon as this diagnosis comes along, not out of intent, certainly not, uh, any devious effort at ostracizing people. But nevertheless, because we have internalized our own caste systems related to what constitutes optimal aging, then all of a sudden these people become a tribe and they have a certain streak, the streak of cognitive confusion. And the next thing you know, in our conversations about them, whether or not it's through the television, radio, internet, or gossip at the water cooler at work, we're not too very unlike the missionary circle, keeping people in their place with our assumptions about those people having crossed over into a place where we couldn't go unless we were armored with techniques, strategies in order to know how to get them into the shower or out of the shower or to feed them. And the next thing you know, like David, with all of this 
information, specialized expert information on how to handle people with dementia. We're like just getting Saul's armor on top of us, you know, layers and layers to go out and meet the person with dementia. Um, so yeah, how do you, how do you go to someone who has been ghosted in your own imagination? And Jim says this about Atticus that Atticus told him, Jim, there's a lot of ways to ghost a person. So how do you go to someone who in your time and place has been ghosted? And how do you touch that person? Touch that person, not as if you're above him or her in some kind of neurological caste system, but actually as equally human with that person as they are with you to touch them in that way. Well, that requires, I would say, the opposite of mastering behavior management techniques. I would say it would have to do with letting go of all of the things that you need. I'm speaking to myself now. All of the assumptions that I need to keep myself safe from being like you. In other words, I've stepped into a space and you have to be a them. Because if you're not a them, then maybe I too am immortal that I too have a finite life, that I too someday will not be able to manage my persona. In other words, if you're not a them, then I'm like you and what you're experiencing, I'm going to experience. And if I can't bear that, then you have to be a them. To touch people with dementia is to let go of a lot of that head work that you're projecting on people with dementia that's actually done in order to keep yourself to keep yourself from losing your place. You said, well, I'm trying to go back to this caste system. And as long as we imagine that who we are is where we are on a dominant subordinate hierarchy, or you can just call it a social status hierarchy. Some people are higher, some people are lower. As long as we imagine that our identity is dependent upon being higher than other people, then we will always project narratives and beliefs onto people to reinforce our internalized caste system or our internalized pyramid. So you ask me, how, how, how do you touch people like that? I would say, how does Scout get free of the mentality of Anne Alexandra? It's a lot like that and a lot less like we typically think that you go to a conference and someone with a PowerPoint puts tools in your toolbox. Listen to the metaphor. And I know this is everywhere in the world of dementia. You go and they're going to give you tools in your toolbox. Now think about that. Unpack that for just a little bit. This is not a conspiracy theory here, okay? I'm not saying let's make up some uh, abstruse critique about the dementia world in order to for political correctness or sensitivity training. No, let's just consider the implications of believing that you're putting tools in your toolbox that are going to somehow make you a more efficient caregiver. That would suggest you're working with an appliance, period. You're working with something that is not organic and you're going to unilaterally, monologically, that is without entering into communication or communion, you're going to maintain control over their behavior. Now, people don't think this consciously, but what I'm saying is because people don't think it consciously doesn't mean it's not working in their imagination subconsciously. Just like those jurors of Maycomb, they had to decide about two narratives based on things going on in their belief system that they were oblivious to. And they made a decision, they made an action based on beliefs that they were oblivious to. Learning how to be with dementia involves partly 
bringing to conscious awareness your beliefs about people with dementia that has actually ghosted them. Hmm. Wow. Uh, <laughs> there's so much in what you just said that's uh, very uh, beautiful. And I, I, for me, Michael, this is, is also very personal. Uh, both my father and his mother, my grandmother, uh, lived with dementia at the end of their lives. And it just you know brings back as you're talking about this the you know my my own beliefs and and feelings about that and interaction with both of them as they were in many ways diminishing day by day just causes a lot of uh, you know a lot of thought and reflection and um, you know how we how we approach people people who are living living with dementia. In, in in all of its forms, and so, people just living with anything. Yeah, ex exactly. Michael, there's and, a couple of quotes that we wanted to bring up with you from the book. Uh, one one that has has always meant a lot to us, where where one of the the uh, the characters said, "I think there's just one kind of folks, folks, with someone to tell to. We always try to find the common ground that all of us as human beings share. That's what we believe." Foster's connection. Is that what the statement would mean to you and how do you interpret it? Well, let's circle back to Palmer Parker's understanding of community. And let's imagine that you participate in a community like that in some way. In other words, you have a group of people with whom you can converse in ways that are not guarded, in which you're not being judged. There's not a social scoreboard to determine where you are in comparison to other people in that group. So you have a place where you can speak without fear that you're going to be dismembered from that body, from that body of people. You know that you belong, you know that you matter, and you know that your identity is not predicated on your perfection. So that's the kind of community you have access to. I'm guessing that a person like that is going to be less fearful of losing his or her place when they're interacting with other people. In other words, I believe that a person who can participate in that kind of communion, because that's really what it is, isn't it? You're participating in a kind of communion that when you're not with those people is going to give you greater courage to interact with people without doing that scoreboarding stuff, because you don't need to project onto these other people, these kinds of things. So if we'll keep that in mind, then, Imagine then a someone who has the confidence that who they are does not have to do with being above people, that there is a, a sense in which their membership is never going to be terminated. When a person like that interacts with a person with dementia, then they are able to notice things that they would not have noticed if they came in full of anxiety about their own identities. In other words, with the kind of confidence that they have from themselves participating in communion, then they can interact with people with dementia in such a way that the common elements in dementia starts to come to their awareness. This is going back to your question about folks being folks. I'm saying that we won't ever be able to fully understand the way in which our destinies are totally interdependent. If our entire sense of self depends on our place in a pyramid, 
It's because we are accepted in a community in which there's real communion that we're able to notice how folks are folks. We're able to see things in that other person and know, yes, that's about, that's also me because we're not fearful that if we're somehow less than who we are, we're going to be kicked out of the community. We don't notice, in other words, how much folks are folks if we're pyramiding. We won't notice how much common ground we have if we're keeping social score because we're afraid of the judgment of the neighborhood gossip or of the internet, etc. This is an important thing with respect to empathy, I would say. Our ability to tune in to other people so that they feel received. And it, at this point, it would always be a particular person and not a they. You can't really tune in to generalizations. So a particular he or particular she or however a person identifies him or herself, you're tuning into that particular person, but you're doing it without your own need to project a caste system onto that person because your own identity doesn't depend on where you are in a caste system. Your own identity is secured in the communion of your, of the community like Palmer Parker Parker talked about. You know that you're fed emotionally and spiritually because you've taken of communion. So therefore you're not hungry. And when you're not hungry, you can notice things about people that you wouldn't notice if you were hungry. If you see what I mean, that we're never going to be able to enter into empathetic relationships with other people if we ourselves are not participating in a kind of community where we're received. If we're not accepted the way we want to accept people with dementia, at least ideally, then I don't know if we'll ever see our common ground. I don't ever know that we will see that folks are folks because we won't be at liberty to do that we will have to scoreboard because we won't have an identity at all if we don't make a them out of them. Who would we be if our own our only source of being a person at all has to do with that caste system? So the point would be that the community that Palmer Parker talks about gives us a space to walk away from pyramids. We can walk out of talking like that and we can walk into talking in a different way. And then if we start to talk that way, we will start to discover similarities that we would have never discovered talking in the other way because it would have been too dangerous talking in the other way to ever come on those kinds of discoveries through dialogue. So that's kind of my, I'm trying to tie all this together and to, to bring our, our topic of empathy and to introduce a larger social structure in which empathy is more likely more or less likely to happen, to ask people to be empathetic to other people when that particular person is starving for communion, is to ask them to do something that just is almost like asking someone who is him or or herself starving for food to go around and feeding other people. It's not going to happen. So empathy can't just be imagined at least I'm talking out loud here, we can't just imagine it in abstraction from a larger social structure. If we want to encourage people to be empathetic, then we're going to have to create communities in which people can communicate with each other in ways that they know who they are outside of a caste system. We can't just ask people to pretend like we're all equal when in fact we don't have any other way of knowing who we are except to be not equal to other people. You you follow what I'm saying? 
Absolutely. Yes. And, and one of the things that we've found to be true is that empathy and love are so inter interconnected. And Harper Lee, an interesting known fact is that she never liked to be interviewed about her book. And in one of her interviews, somebody said, is To Kill a Mockingbird a love story? And she said, it is a love story, plain and simple. And that statement confused a lot of people because her book is anything but a rom romance novel. Uh, but it's not that kind of love she is referring to. It's the kind of love among family and friends and neighbors and enemies. But you've, you've asked the question, does anything really matter? without love. And, you know, this, uh, we're going to have need to end today. And this is what we'd like to end on with you. And what we would, we would love to hear what you believe about that. You know, it, you know, we think it's a very, very, very powerful statement. And one that we believe is at the heart of the mission of someone to tell it to, as well as the mission of memory bridge. So if you would just like to end today with, you know, Reflecting on that statement about love, we think um, we, you'll be leaving people with uh, something very, very meaningful and very powerful. Well, I'll do my best. Let's circle back to this romance. Uh, it's a romance in the sense that Scout marries Boo Radley, you might say spiritually, and the end of the novel. You know, she escorts Boo. Boo has just saved her life and Jim's life. She's always imagined someday meeting Boo Radley. She's fantasized that she would meet him on the porch and she would say good morning. And he might say, a right pretty spell we're having here, aren't we? So she's fantasized meeting Boo. And finally, at the end of her life, she does when Boo Radley comes out, comes out to save her life. Remember, this is what the novel's about, whether or not Boo Radley will come out. Then she escorts him, but she insists they're going back to his house after he saved the kids that when they got outside of her home, that she would not lead him, that he would lead her as would, as would be proper. And arm in arm, they walk to his house. Now, there's been a wedding between Dill and Scout has been a subtext. We know that uh, that one of the the box in which one of the gifts the kids got was the box in which wedding rings were given. This is what Boo has been given through the tree. So there's a lot of images about a marriage. This one, indeed, it's a love story. They walk to Boo Radley's house. Scout is eight years old. This man has just saved her life. He walks into the house and she said, and then I never saw him again for the rest of my life. Now, first of all, that's just not plausible if we're thinking about what's likely or not, okay, that she would not see the person who just saved her life for the rest of her life. She's eight. We have no reason to think that Boo Radley is about to die or anything like that. So what's going on there? Then she walks in front of the window, the window that he has been watching these young people for the entire story. And she says, and it's the first time that I had seen Makem from this angle. Now, what is she doing? She is seeing now from the perspective that Boo Radley had been seeing and watching her. In very real sense, she's never going to see Boo Radley again because she's going to see with Boo Radley from here on out. He has entered her skin. You see what I mean? They have now done exactly what Attica said you would have to do to really understand someone. You would have to get in, you would have to see the world. You would get, have to get inside of their home and see out their window. You would have to get in their skin. This is what's happened. This is why it's a romance, because it's a marriage of Boo Radley, a kind of spirit, 
into this young lady. And then as soon as it happens, she sees Makem in all four seasons simultaneously. In other words, she says it was night, but in my mind, if you look at the text, she said, in my mind, it was daylight. And I saw Makem in the summer and I saw Makem in the fall. She's having a vision of Makem that she said she had never had before because she had never been in that angle. She's seeing now with the eyes of Boo Radley. And when she, when she sees this way, she's not seeing in history. She's seeing in something like eternity. So yes, I would say it's a love story. It's a love story between Scout and Boo. It's about their marriage and it's his spirit where her previous mind used to be that explains why she's free from the mentality of Anne Alexandra and the jurors of Makeup. She has a new mind because she is seeing now with a spirit that is larger than her own ego. With respect to this business of love, I would say that unless we have some kind of marriage with something larger than our ego, unless we're able to see our own makeup from the eyes of a Holy Spirit, whether or not you want to attribute that to Christianity or to any number of other traditions in which there is a sense of a spirit that is holy. Until we're able to see with this ego transcending spirit, we're never going to really understand anything with respect to eternity. And the point about other things mattering without love, I would say if we never see the world except through these ego bound eyes, I don't care how scientifically precise we our understandings become. Would we really have understood make them? I don't think so. So when people ask me, how do you know that memory bridge matters? What's the scientific evidence that going and spending time with people with dementia matters? How do you know that love matters? My question is, I will be happy to try to bring forth evidence that love matters. If you would meet me halfway and bring forth evidence that anything at all without love matters. I think at that point, we would not necessarily have a debate, but I think we could at least recognize that what we mean by evidence might have everything to do with whether or not we're looking through our own eyes or the eyes of something that transcends our own ego. And having someone to tell it to must be an absolute vital step in being able to let go of our caste system membership and to step into a place where we're folks and we can talk about ourselves in ways without fear of being ostracized and start to come to know who we are, perhaps for the very first time. I want to thank you guys a lot for inviting me, uh, not only just to be in this podcast, but just to, to be a friend now of your particular investment in your uh, community that you're building and in your own ministry. It's, it's an honor to have been invited to shoot the breeze with you guys. <laughs> Michael Verdi, it, it's been more than an honor for us, and it's more than just shooting the breeze. It's it's talking about some things that are very eternal, we believe, very sacred, and we are grateful for this opportunity to talk with you, to hear from your perspectives, because we uh, we think they are well, they're tremendous, and so we thank you for being with us today. 
we've spent most of this episode just looking at one another nodding and and just applauding you and your responses it's been truly humbling so thank you i'm applauding harper lee i'm applauding the people who are able to capture this spirit in artistic forms and spiritual forms i am the beneficiary of the profundity of so many people and it's a blessing for me to be able to share what these folks have enabled me to participate in with other people so i get the head nodding i'm looking over at my novel and nodding my head in gratitude to harper lee and to really any artist who's able to translate things that are so impossible perhaps to capture in definitions, which takes us back to why it might be so hard to define empathy. It may be one of those things that is just simply larger than us and that we have to live into and not imagine that we're going to capture in some way that makes it smaller than us because it may be just larger than us. It certainly is. Thank Michael, you, Michael, thank you so much. Hey guys, see you later. Thank you so much. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to the Someone to Tell It To podcast. Please support our work. Go to our website, someone to tell it to.org, and you can sign up and uh, please reach out to us. <laughs>